Uzo in Greece, Pisco in Peru, and Moonshine in the mountains of Tennessee. This week, it's all about liqueurs. So grab a glass and strap in. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, it's something a little different. Instead of visiting one place and talking about the food and drink there, we're visiting lots of places to talk about just one thing, liqueurs, homemade or commercially made liqueurs, some of varying levels of legality in places all over the world, from the Lemoncello of Italy to the Rocky from Crete to the liqueur made from cherries in Lisbon, Portugal. But before we get there, a couple of friends of the show have books out, and I've had guides from Devour Tours on the show talking about Madrid and Paris and other cities, and now Devour Tours, they've released a cookbook with over 50 recipes from some of the cities where they do tours. And Joseph Rosendo, he was also on the show. He's the host of the TV program Travel Scope. He talked about the book he was working on when he was on the podcast, and now it's out. It's called Musings, The Short and Happy Pursuit of Pleasure and Other Journeys. Both these books are out in time for the holidays, and I've got links for them in the show notes at radiomisfits.com. Destination, eat, drink. Constantine from Culinary Backstreets talked to me about ouzo in Greece, how it's distilled, and how it compares to grappa and rakia. Ouzo is a drink made from the skins of the grapes. After they collect the juice of the grapes to make it wine, they use the leftovers and make it ouzo. Ouzo is a PDO product in Greece and uh, is a double distillation alcohol. It's about 40% of alcohol. It can be found up to 48% of alcohol. And on the second distillation, they flavor it with uh, some herbs, uh, fennel, and star anise. And the star anise gives it its licorice flavor. You can say that a drink in Greece is ouzo or tsipuro, a single distillation alcohol, also made of grapes, and sometimes flavored with star anise. Uh, you can say that one of them is ouzo, or the Greek tsipuro, when it turns milky, when you add water or ice to it, because the molecules of star anise stay clear in pure alcohol. They only show when they make a reaction with the molecules of the water. So the Greek ouzo tastes similar to the Italian sabuca or the French pastis. And the Greek tsipuro, which is a single distillation alcohol, also made of grapes, it's like the Italian grappa, but it's more smooth and less acidic. I was going to compare it to, uh, I was going to compare it to grappa. And the other thing that I wanted to know, Constantine, was how does it compare with rakia? Because you are on the peninsula where Serbia is close by, uh, Croatia is close by, and these, all these countries have rakia, which is also a distillate made from uh, grape skins. How is ouzo similar or different? Well, ouzo tastes similar to the Turkish raki, 
And uh, in the Balkan area and uh, the Mediterranean, we have many things in common. So they name it differently. Um, it comes with a slightly different taste because of the variety of the grapes. And uh, for example, the leftovers of the grapes in uh, Georgia, uh, they make it cha-cha, uh, which is uh, like fire water. Uh, so it's something we have in common. It's the same ingredients, uh, but with a different uh, flavor because of the variety of the grapes and the distillation processes. Limoncello is probably the most popular liqueur in Italy, and I talk about the best place to buy limoncello on the whole of the Amalfi Coast. Lemoncello is everywhere on the Amalfi Coast, and that's because this is where the famous Sumato lemon grows. You'll see the trees everywhere, and if you're there in season, you can't miss the giant fruit hanging heavy on the Sfumato tree. The baskets of the fruit are for sale in markets, and you'll see them everywhere. The sfumato lemon isn't like the lemons we're used to seeing in grocery stores. That's because they've been bred with the local bitter oranges in the region that makes them large in size and knobby in texture. Perfect for making lemoncello. Lemoncello is a digestif, um, sweet and lemony with a big alcoholic kick that surprisingly doesn't have any lemon juice in it at all. Lemoncello gets its lemon flavor from the lemon rinds. And I love lemoncello after a nice meal or with some fruit or a tart. And you can get a glass of lemoncello at practically any restaurant on the Amalfi Coast. But if you want to get a bottle for yourself, my favorite place to shop is the Antici Sapori in the town of Amalfi. The first time I ever visited Amalfi, I was hesitant to go inside Antici Sapori. That's because they had these bottles on display shaped like Italy or painted with lemons, and I couldn't help but think this place looks like a tourist trap. But I couldn't have been more wrong. This place is the real deal. They make their own limoncello. They've been doing it for ages, and their limoncello is delicious. The fun bottles, it's just a bonus. Now, you might be tempted to buy a bottle and bring it back home with you. The problem with that is the corks on the limoncello bottles are not necessarily made to survive plane travel in 2019. The changes in the pressure tend to force that cork out, and when you get home, you've got this lemony, wet, sticky mess inside your luggage. If you really want to bring a bottle home with you, make sure you duct tape that cork in very securely. Put the bottle in a zip-top bag so if the worst happens, at least all your clothes don't get ruined. The best thing to do, though, is just buy a bottle and enjoy a taste every day on your Italian vacation. If you want to make limoncello at home, it's easy. 25 years ago, our friends Steffi and Luigi taught us how to make limoncello, and we've been making it ever since at home. You just have to find the highest quality lemons you possibly can. And people uh, in Texas especially, Meyer lemons will not do the trick. Meyer lemons have this very thin skin. You want to find the lemons with the thickest skin possible because the rind is what gives the limoncello its flavor. So find the best organic thick lemons that you possibly can and make limoncello. 
Nora Dunn, the professional hobo, talked to me about the local spirit Rocky and how you'll be offered it wherever you go on the island of Crete. So Rocky is, it's basically like the, 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 Cretan moonshine. And it has another name uh, that I can't pronounce. It starts with a T-S, Tzuki, I don't know. But informally, it's known as Rocky. Uh, and it's it, it's um, similar to grappa in Italy and in other places. It's made from, it's a, it's a very highly distilled alcohol made from grapes. It's incredibly strong. At, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't really like it. Um, but, <laughs> but it can taste a lot better when they turn it into racomolo, which is they heat it up and add honey and cinnamon and make it taste all sweet and lovely. Oh, nice. Okay. But Rocky is everywhere. So if you go to a restaurant, you will be presented with Rocky at the end of the meal. It's complimentary. They bring out a little bottle and two shot glasses, and you have as much or as little as you want. Um, also, if you stop for directions in the countryside, <laughs> there's a good chance someone might offer you a shot of Rocky. Um, my, my cheese guy at 11 in the morning, you know, after we'd had a little a little fun chat, he's offering a shot of Rocky. Uh, you know, I went into a store to buy some jewelry. I'm offered Rocky. So it's, I, I have to say, I'm not a big drinker, nor did I particularly like Rocky uh, in, in terms of the taste. Uh, but it's a it's a really integral part of the culture. Uh, and uh, I was told by a local friend that if you don't drink or if you don't want to drink something that has been offered to you, you simply touch it to your lips. Uh, and that will suffice. If you refuse a drink, you are offending them. I'll tell you, we um, you, you can find stuff similar to this all over the Balkan Peninsula. And when we were in Croatia, they have something called rakia. And it's the same thing, basically. It's Croatian moonshine. It's distilled from grape skins and seeds. And the very first night we were in Croatia, the shots were just coming fast and furious and i was i was doing my best to keep up but my girlfriend after a couple of these she did exactly what she said she put it to her lips and then she kind of snuck it down by her hip and poured it into a plant (laughs) (laughs) i'm like that plant's gonna be dead tomorrow you know that don't you Vesna Placanis is a nature guide in the Great Smoky Mountains, and she tells the story of moonshine in the mountains of East Tennessee and the famous character Popcorn Sutton. Well, moonshine was or was for a long time and probably is a little bit, but not quite so much, uh, an economic necessity. Uh, had to do a lot with the death of the American chestnut tree, the fact that um, people needed, uh, when the American chestnut trees died and they couldn't harvest the chestnuts, uh, they needed another uh, way of making some uh, extra money because they were mostly subsistence farmers here. Um, and they were uh, from Scotland and Ireland, so they had these old whiskey recipes and they just modified it for what they had around here, which was mostly corn, and uh, started making moonshine. Uh, they tried to be good citizens. They paid taxes. They would go to Knoxville and sell it uh, to the market until Jack Daniels heard about the competition and didn't like it. And uh, word is that he paid off officials to uh, arrest these poor little mountain folk. And uh, so they went into hiding and they kept making their moonshine and they kept selling it. Uh, and eventually the revenuers kind of were figuring out where they were. So these locals, they souped up their engines so they could outrun the revenuers, and that eventually turned into NASCAR racing. Um, So it was a big tradition around here. 
Now it's legal that you have a lot of distilleries that are local that are popping up. I think we have four now in Gatlinburg, and they are definitely using a lot of these old recipes. Um, I still know of two places that make the old timey uh, moonshine, and I will say it's better. <laughs> the old by old timey moonshine, you mean the not legal stuff? Exactly. Ah, very good. So. You know, there's uh, some of these uh, moonshiners were famous characters in their own right. Describe some of these characters. Who are some of these characters that were involved with moonshining, these larger-than-life personalities? Definitely, I'd say Popcorn Sutton was our most famous one. And he would make these underground videos, kind of thumbing his nose up to people, uh, to the feds, and release them. And um, he's actually been featured on whatever that moonshine show is, the reality show, uh, but he lived around here. I met him uh, during a, uh, my daughter's soccer game. We stopped at this little heritage. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it was a Pigeon Forge that was dry at the time. Pigeon Forge now serves uh, liquor, but at the time it wasn't. And here was this heritage festival where all these people are doing crafts. And there's this old dude who looked like he just came out of, you know, central casting he had this long beard and the overalls and the floppy hat, and he is brewing up some moonshine right in the middle of this <laughs> church festival on a Sunday, no less. <laughs> Bible Belt. Oh, the horror. The horror, exactly. And he was trying his, you know, of course, he had to try his wares to make sure it was okay. And he had these little itty-bitty Dixie cups that he was handing out. So, so we we had tried some and it was phenomenal. And um, then we left. We went to soccer. We came back, and by the time we came back, he was three sheets to the wind. He was so trash. He was not invited back the next year. Oh. Uh, Popcorn has since passed away because he did get caught with I think forty stills in the national forest, which was right outside of the Smokies, um, and he was facing some pretty hard time. Um, but apparently his recipe still survives and there's still a few here and there. So they say. James Blick from Devour Tours talks about the culture of drinking vermouth in Spain and how it's not the same drink that your grandmother used to drink. Vermouth, like for you, so many people that I've met who have come to Spain have had that vermouth epiphany uh, and have, you know, they know of it. They've heard of it. They're like, is that martini? Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, and then you're like, uh, well, first of all, yes, martini is a, is a brand of vermouth, but we have our local brands here in Spain and we serve it on tap. And the bars will often have, you know, two taps, one for beer, one for vermouth. And we drink it straight. Uh, and people's people are like, oh, I'm not going to like this. And they try it. And, you know, next thing they're they're You know, they're having vermouths every day. And and, it, <laughs> and, and I think. Yes. What people love about it as well, and what I love about it, is we have this concept here called La Hora del Vermú, which means like vermouth time, or you know, literally mm -hmm. as the vermouth hour. But really, it's like vermouth time. And this is something that we have in Madrid and Barcelona and in, in you know, different parts of Spain, but not so much in the north and not traditionally so much in the south. And, and it's before a meal, uh, generally on the weekend, before lunch, you will uh, go to a tapas bar and you will have a glass of vermouth. And this is this, you know, sweet drink that has some bitterness to it and it's infused with different botanicals and spices. It's, it's a wine-based drink. Uh, and you will have that and you will have it with sort of different pickled uh, or vinegary snacks uh, you know, and potato chips, anchovies on potato chips, you know, some canned things, olives. 
and it's just it's for me it's almost like I, I have a YouTube channel and about kind of where to eat in Spain and things like that. And I think once what I said kind of in the spur of the moment about vermouth is is how I what I do love about it. It's like it tastes like hope. And it's like the beginning mm, of wow. the beginning of lunch, you know, before you get to dessert and you feel horrendous and you got to go and have a you got to have a siesta and it's like, you know, <laughs> you're foggy and things like that. It's that moment when it's the first drink, you're with friends and and it's quite strong. It's about 15%. So you you know, you feel the alcohol and you get a bit of that buzz on and it's just so easy to drink and and I just think it's a wonderful moment in the day. Say, you know, we obviously eat lunch about two, two, maybe three o'clock on a weekend. So it's like one, one thirty, uh, or even earlier, and you're just starting to kind of open up into what is going to be this wonderful lunch experience with friends. And vermouth is like the 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 the, the kind of like the trigger for that uh, and the association with that. So the culture is huge here and it's actually come back. You know, it's gone through ways. Vermouth originally was created in the eighteenth century in Turin in, in Italy right. and came to Spain in the early 20th century with Italian immigrants to Barcelona. So it's very strong in Barcelona and then came to Madrid. But if you were here in Madrid sort of 20 years ago, it was considered like, quote unquote, like an old man's drink. Uh, but now it has become, it's kind of come back as, you know, as we, you know, particularly with more globalization, I think people like to that sense of like, well, what is my culture? You know, you know, where am I from? Uh, what do we have that's unique here? And so there's been a real resurgence of of vermouth. Uh, and actually, somebody told me that vermouth, like the vermouth hour, like that lunchtime pre-drink, is huge now because a lot of people who are say in their 30s or you know 20s, if they've got if they're starting to have kids, it's a great way to day drink with your family around because you can go down <laughs> to the local bar with your friends and you've got the you know and kids are allowed in bars in Spain. And so you've got the stroller there and you're, you're effectively day drinking so, and having a couple of vermouths. So I don't know if that bears any, you know, is true, but I like that theory as well. <laughs> you know, we were in Barcelona, it was 15 years ago, and I don't recall seeing vermouth at all there. And then we were in Madrid last year and, you know, it's exploded. Now, maybe we weren't paying enough attention when we were in Barcelona back in, you know, 15 years ago because we were so focused on drinking cava. But yeah. um, it seems like it's happened so quickly in Spain, this vermouth resurgence. Yeah, I, th I think it has. And I think I think in Barcelona, sometimes it can be harder to see because of the way it's served. It's often uh, it's not served necessarily as often on tap from behind the bar. And also for a lot of people who are visiting uh, Barcelona, myself included, you know, we have a love affair with cava that that kind yeah. of, you know, can eclipse it. Uh, but in Madrid, when it sometimes feels like it's beer or vermouth and we, you know, we don't drink as much cava here and obviously wine uh, with your meal, I think it's more visible and simply because, yeah, it's sitting there behind the bar on tap. So, yeah, in Barcelona, often it's more sort of from like a bottle um, that they will have that they might be filling up somewhere else, but you just don't see quite as many taps. So there is a little bit kind of regional differences uh, in how we drink vermouth. But I'm sure in 15 years ago in Madrid, it wasn't as big a deal uh, and has really come alive in the last sort of 10 years. Kira Cook, the host of the TV show Islands Without Cars, told me about a local drink that may or may not be a joke played on tourists. On this uh, show, you try a local drink called Eirgrog. Eirgrog, yeah. yeah. Thank you. And uh, describe, tell us what that is and how was it? Because in the show, like you, you take a sip and then you make a face. So I'm not certain how much you liked it or didn't um, like it. It's an intense flavor. It's rum with, well, when we first got to the island, I was like, so what's this local drink? Eirgrog. And they were like, well, it's pigeon, <clears throat> pigeon eggs. 
you have to use a specific uh, Helgoland pigeon egg. And I was like, wait, what? And they, you know, played. I'm very gullible. So and my job is to ask questions <laughs> anyway. And, you know, typically believe the stories that people say. They, uh, you know, assented on that lie. But uh, essentially it's egg whites uh, frothed up with rum and hot water and I believe some honey. Um, it, it, or maybe it was whiskey, honestly. Gosh, I'm sorry. This was a year ago now. So <laughs> I've had a lot of drinks since then. I don't exactly remember. <laughs> but it's I'm, I think it's rum. I think it's rum. So Arhagog is rum, egg whites, hot water, and I believe some kind of a sweetener. If it was honey or maybe some kind of um, whatever, one of those other liqueur. Um, and it was very disgusting. Um, the locals do not drink it. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a joke they're playing it's on a, tourists. It's absolutely then. a joke they play on tourists. It's like, you know, every island needs like the specialty drink. And, you know, they advertise it. But I, I looked around and nobody was drinking. Everybody was drinking beer or whiskey. And um, I, I think... It would, you know, if I had like nursed it and it was like a freezing day, yeah, I could have put one of those away, maybe two, and you would have been very drunk because it was very strong. Ginginha is a famous drink in Lisbon, Portugal. I talk about the two most famous micro bars where you can enjoy this sweet cherry elixir. Ginginha is served in a little plastic shot glass and usually costs about one and a half euro. And Getting a ginginha is a cheap way to have some fun. Ginginha is made by adding cinnamon, sugar, and sour cherries to brandy. The drink was invented by a friar at the Church of St. Anthony in Lisbon. He added sour cherries to brandy. He shared the recipe with a Galician man named Esfinira, who perfected the recipe by taking the brandy and the cherries and adding the sugar and the cinnamon. Esfinira opened the Ginginha Esfinira Bar in 1840, and today this place is now known as A Ginginha, still in business. Don't expect to come in, sit down, get a menu, order a drink and some food. This bar is nothing like that. It's really just a counter that opens up into the square with bartenders pouring shots of the sweet drink into tiny plastic cups. Get yours with or without the cherry and stand outside with the locals and tourists enjoying the sweet elixir. And just a couple minutes walk away, also in Baja, is another characteristic Jinjinha bar. This one is called Jinjinha Sem Rival. They've been in business since 1890. Give both a Jinjinha and Jinjinha Sem Rival a try. Everyone has their own favorite. And if you talk to Lisboetas who are middle-aged or older, They'll likely tell you about how their parents and grandparents would give them a little shot of ginginha to cure everything from the common cold to a sore throat. Samantha Lewis is an American expat who's made her home in Lima, Peru. She conducts food tours in her adopted hometown, and she talked to me about the local drinks called chicha and pisco. In the Andes, traditionally, chicha would be a fermented corn drink, like a corn beer. So when you have these ceremonies traditionally, like the Pachamanca, which is where they um, dig a large hole in the ground, place some very hot stones, then you place a blanket over it, and very traditional ingredients like potatoes, corn, chili peppers, sweet potato, cassava, um, sometimes some kind of meat and different herbs. Then you'll cover it with the stones again, and then cover it with uh, the earth, the loose earth, and then you let it cook for two to three, depending on what you're, a couple of hours, depending on what your ingredients are. So during this ceremony, 
when they would take out the food, they would do an offering to the Pachamama, so the Earth Mother, to thank her for, and the Andean Cosmovision, you know, at the end, at, at harvest season, for all of the abundance. Um, this chicha, this fermented corn drink, was always kind of played a part in that. And they would always give a drink, kind of an offering back to Mother Earth, showing their gratitude for the abundance of the harvest that year. So this is kind of a staple in the Andean, even Cosmovision, and in a lot of ceremonial um, rituals that you're going to find in the Andes. So it's it's huge. It's a big thing. <laughs> so chicha morada or the or the chicha. Yeah. Oh, but you I can gotta, definitely try try both. I got to try that chicha at some point. That sounds fantastic. Yes. What about yeah. the pisco sour, Sam? We have this in America. A lot of people know about it, but talk about the traditional pisco sour and what's in it, how it's made. Yeah. Sure. So great. So pisco is going to be uh, a distilled. It's it's a liquor that comes from distilled grapes. So grapes are also not indigenous to the region, but they were brought with the Spaniards right, right around their arrival in the mid-16th century, towards the end of the 16th, mid, about 1580 or so. And uh, you actually have the first vineyard in, the Amer- in South America that's here in Peru, just a little bit south of Lima and in an area um, just a little bit south of Lima. And at this time in Spain is a very traditional uh, wine exporter. And they saw that the grapes did really well here and were producing a really nice wine. But this is going to be a threat because it's going to cut into their exports. So they made it illegal for Peru to export wine. So this is how Peru becomes a country that, that a very low domestic wine consumption. But the Spaniards introduced distilling the distillation process of the grape to make Pisco. So this is how, this is actually the birth of Pisco, right? So um, Pisco here in Peru, we don't use the head or the tail. It goes through this distillation process. We throw that away and we just use the body. It's a spirit that is um, about, uh, on average, 42 to 43% alcohol, so about 84 proof. It's quite a, a strong spirit. And then you can really divide Pisco into two categories. You have your aromatic Piscos and your non-aromatic Piscos. So your aromatic piscos are going to be used as a digestif, an aperitif before or after meals, just kind of help with aiding your digestion after a big meal. That's how a lot of people drink it here. And you can get all of the characteristics from the grape itself because pisco's not aged in, in wooden barrels or anything. They're in stainless steel vats. So all of the qualities that you get are actually, it's coming from the grapes themselves. To give you an idea of how strong this is, we've already talked about the alcohol content. But your classic Pisco Sour has three ounces or three shots of Pisco in one cocktail. So it's a ready to go. For a good time. Yeah, <laughs> Rock and exactly. Roll. That will start the night. Yep. You have your three ounces of Pisco, one ounce of lime juice, uh, one ounce of simple syrup or your kind of condensed sugar water, and one egg white. You shake it up and uh, you just top it off with a couple drops of bitters and you are good to go. <laughs> Okay, there you go. We finish with Pisco, and we got liqueurs from all over the world. That was fun. And I've got links to all the work of our guests, whether it's food tours or books or whatever, at radiomisfits.com. Just look for Destination Eat Drink and check out the show notes. Next week, we're in India to try dosa and Indian donuts with Wendy Werneth, the nomadic vegan. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. Even though we can't travel right now, you can take a virtual foodie visit to cities all over the world at the website. My blog 
is also there. Last week, I think I got ahead of myself on the blog saying that I posted about a special Portuguese cheese. Actually, what I posted about last week was the bicycle passeggiata in Ferrara, Italy. This week, I posted about the special Portuguese cheese. And you can see both those posts at destinationeatdrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Grand Poobah Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.